Okay, if you got your Bible, turn to Matthew, not Luke, but Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to be reading a, a passage in Matthew chapter 1 and in chapter 2. So first, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And then skip down to chapter 2, verses 13. We're going to look at 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a, in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father God, we thank you for uh, this day and this time again. God, we ask that as we come into, um, we open up your word and we, and we study, um, we come into this uh, time um, in our worship, God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would, you would shine a light on this text, God, as we begin to talk about a subject tonight um, that is very, very sensitive, um, God, a, a subject that weighs heavy on many hearts. Um, we pray that, um, God, that you, would, that you would use this text um, uh, to do the work that you would have it do in our lives. God, I pray as I speak these things that everything that I say... God would be um, with grace um, and and love. God, that I would speak truthfully, um, but also in a way that is is gentle. Um, God, and again, that does not um, God hurt, um, disrupt, um, agitate um, a topic that is already very sensitive um, to many people's hearts and in many people's lives. God. Um, just bless us as we as we read and as we study together, God, and use this um, for your glory. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, so today, today, like I said earlier, is is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, 
And Sanctity of Life Sunday, one of the main things that it has done since its inception is to draw attention to, to what is almost an incomprehensible tragedy um, in our culture. And that is um, the reality that since 1973, since the Roe v. Wade decision, that more than 60 million children have been killed through abortion in just the United States alone. And so for a number of years, uh, this time of year, it usually coincides with around the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, um, uh, which brings a whole other aspect in terms of civil rights and, and um, uh, relationship between races and things like that. It's a whole other aspect of the sanctity of life issue. But we're going to zoom in um, and talk about this since it's so prevalent and so obvious in the early life and story of Jesus. And obviously it's a difficult issue to talk about. Um, especially because it has increasingly become a political issue in our culture. Um, and when we talk about abortion and, and things relating to abortion, a lot of times we fall into all the same traps um, that our ugly and divisive political culture um, entail, right? And so for Christians, sometimes um, as we talk about this thing, it leads us into talking and acting hatefully or self-righteously about this topic. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, it oftentimes leads us to act fearfully. Um, we're worried that we will offend or, or hurt or ostracize um, someone who has dealt with abortion. Um, I want to say it, it, that, that this is not a political issue. right? Abortion, although it has become a political issue, we don't talk about it because it's a political issue. We talk about it because it is a moral issue, because it is an issue that deals with the very way that God has designed us. It is an issue that relates to the dignity of humanity. It is an issue that relates to the justice um, that, that should be present in, in a just society and among the people of God. And so... Recognize that I don't talk about this stuff with, uh, uh, without a certain level of trepidation, right? It's, it's, a, uh, it's a sensitive topic. Um, but as we've been working through the story of Jesus and the early story of his life and nativity, um, we're confronted with an event that, is, that obviously connects to the theme of abortion and infanticide, right? An account that Luke completely leaves out of his gospel. That's why we've jumped over to the gospel of Matthew. Um, but Matthew includes it, and that is the story of the killing of all the male children uh, in the city of Bethlehem uh, by King Herod. And so we talk about um, broadly about, um, we could talk about broadly the issue of abortion, but, but what I want to do is I want to zoom in and talk about it in a very particular way. Um, and I want to talk about it from the perspective and role of Joseph. And that may seem kind of weird. Um, but Joseph plays a critical role in the protection of life in the account of Jesus' early life, right? And so, again, Luke barely mentions Joseph, but, but Matthew, most of our information about Joseph comes from the book of Matthew, and so that's why we jumped over there. And I want to look at the character of Joseph, right? Look at his posture, look at his character, look at his actions as relates specifically to how men should respond in the abortion debate, okay? So I'm kind of zooming in. I'm talking directly to men in this, in this um, sermon, okay? Although, obviously, many of the principles relate to women as well. Um, 
But as we look at Joseph, I think we see a certain kind of uh, a character and a posture that we should have. And so um, we begin briefly just with this verses 18 and 19 in chapter 1, talking about Jesus' conception and birth. And even in that little short passage, we see already the heart of Joseph in, in some of these things, okay? And so again, verse 18, it says, now, that, uh, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay? So first thing um, that is critical, I think, for men especially, but really everyone in the church in general, um, as we come to the discussion about abortion um, and, and all the issues surrounding it, the thing that is essential to start with is a right posture in those things, okay? So um, we live in a cultural moment that loves fighting, right? We love soapbox kind of prophets. We love cable news, one-liner burns. Like that's the kind of culture that we live in. But those things are, are um, completely unwanted in this scenario, right? We don't want to speak about the issue of abortion with any of those kind of, of voices or attitudes, okay? For one, because they burn so many bridges, um, and there's no way that we can go back after we have said some of those things. And two, because they hurt so many people. Because there's so many people who are dealing with these issues in such personal um, ways. And then, the, and then we say things that are just off the cuff or callous or, or cavalier. Um, and we hurt people as we talk about this subject, right? And so our posture coming into this discussion is, is super important. Um, and we see a different model of, of, you could say, a different model of manhood in the example of Joseph, right? Um, and we learn so much from looking at Joseph's reaction to the discovery that Mary is pregnant, okay? And in one line, it speaks volumes about his heart and his character, okay? So it says this, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. So at once, in that line, it reveals two sides of, of his attitude. Number one, it re reveals the fact that Joseph takes sin seriously. And two, it reveals the fact that he approaches sin with a, with a heart of mercy, right? With a posture of mercy at the same time. Here is the, the problem when we talk about abortion. Um, and it is the heart-wrenching challenge of us talking about abortion. We have to somehow be honest, and we have to be merciful at the same time. That's the hard thing. It's hard to balance those two realities um, in, in, in our life and in our speech and all those things. Because here's the deal. Two truths. Truth number one is this. Abortion is murder. That means that among our friends, our family, our community, and yes, even among our church, we have people who are murderers in our midst. Some who have had abortions. Some who have funded abortions. Some who have encouraged or coerced someone else to have an abortion. The stark reality is, is that you have participated in the murder of another human being. Okay, we hesitate to say it that starkly, right? But here's why it's important for us to say that. 
Number one, it's important because it is an affront to the dignity and the worth of that child to ignore it. To downplay what has happened in any way is to downplay that child's humanity and downplay that child's value. So to act like it is not murder is to perpetuate more violence and injustice on that child who has died. Okay, that's the first reason why we have to we have to say what abortion really is. But two, we desire also reconciliation, right? We desire restoration and forgiveness on the behalf of the people who have been involved in in that child's death. And here's the deal. There cannot be reconciliation without repentance. And there cannot be repentance without confession. And there cannot be confession if we don't rightly call sin, sin. And so if we desire healing and redemption where an abortion has taken place, then there has to be a reckoning with sin, and so we have to call it what it is. Okay, that's the first truth, okay? But there is another truth, right? And maybe an even more important truth, and that is this. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Sin, even the sin of murder, does not disqualify a person from the kingdom of God. His mercy, his forgiveness is bigger than your sin, right? Cheeto and I were talking about song selection um, and for this week, and, and I was telling the topic, and I was like, man, I'm not exactly sure what songs fit with this topic, right? There's not a lot of worship songs about abortion. Right? But then if you go back and look at the lyrics to the songs that we sang, they're perfect. Right? They are perfect for the issue. Um, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That's exactly what we're talking about, the truth that we're recognizing. Right? Um, the truth is some people, some of the people whom God has used most mightily in the history of, of the world have been murderers. Moses, David, Paul all sinned in different ways that we could equate in some way to, to um, the, the sins that we see surrounding abortion. And so here's the deal. We have to hold both those truths out there, right, when we discuss abortion. Um, Joseph does that, I think, in his own way in his response, right? He is honest about the perceived sin that is there, and he acknowledges that it has consequences. Um, he says that he is not going to marry Mary because he perceives that she has committed adultery, right? She has been unfaithful to him, and so there's a consequence for that. He doesn't just say, hey, uh, you know, you do you, I'll do me, YOLO, whatever. Uh, We can live however we want to. Um, He doesn't act like that. He says, no, something has happened. Something sinful appears to have happened, and there are consequences for that, right? But notice he doesn't do it from a position of condemnation. There's no anger of, of wounded pride or self-righteous vengeance um, or vindictive kind of judgment. There's none of that in there. There's just mercy and grace. He says, I don't want, I, I want this, I, there has to be a consequence, but I, I don't want her shamed. Um, I don't want her, the consequence of, of adultery in that time for, for a woman who had committed adultery would have been stoning by death. I don't want that for her, right? She's made a mistake, but I, I don't want those things for her. There's mercy and grace there. There's no interest to condemn, even though in this case he thinks he's been personally wronged. And if he was right, 
that would be the case. But there's still only kindness. I'm sure that lots of different things are going through the mind of a young woman who is, who is seeking um, or considering or contemplating an abortion. But I, there was an article uh, in the Gospel Coalition this last week that, that made a great point about the whole issue, is that by and large, women who are seeking an abortion aren't calculated, militant, pro-choice culture warriors trying to make a point. Right? Most of them are just scared. They're just scared. They're afraid of pretty much everything, right? Afraid of how this is going to affect relationships. Afraid of how it's going to affect career. Afraid of how it's going to affect family. How are they going to manage once a child comes? What are people going to think? That's the opportunity that the situation provides us, right? Not for judgment, but an opportunity to come in and stand alongside somebody and to um, speak to them again with honesty about the situation and yet at the same time to administer grace and to meet them at their point of need. That's what Joseph does, I think. Again, not exactly the same issue, um, but similar in a lot of ways. And so his character, that, that, that the way he is addressing these things even becomes more evident in chapter 2, more explicit. Because not only do we see how Joseph literally is thrust into a situation that involves the murder of children, but also we, he has, there's another person there to be the foil to see how we're not supposed to act. Right? And so what we see is um, in this passage, in the character of Joseph, that men are called to be protectors of the innocent. Okay, um, And again, Herod acts as the antithesis of that idea. And so what do we see Herod doing? Right, Herod perceives rightly in this story that Jesus is a threat to his rule and to his dynasty. We talked about that in the, in the previous weeks, right? Jesus comes to bring the rise and fall of many, right? Jesus doesn't come to bring peace to everyone. To those who are against him, Jesus comes to bring a sword, right? He comes to bring division. He comes to exalt the humble and to humble the exalted. And so it says that when Herod finds out that he cannot isolate who the, the individual child is, is this child of prophecy that the Magi have come to see, he goes, he flies into a rage, and he commands that all the children who are somewhere under two years of age, kind of giving himself a wide um, range of making sure he gets all of the children who could possibly be this child from the prophecy, he commands that every single one of them be executed. Dozens, certainly, maybe hundreds of children there in Bethlehem, right? So Herod is a man who values self-interest, over even the lives of the innocent. And he acts in a way that is in keeping with that self-interest. So here's, here's, a, here's a, an offshoot of that. Typical line you hear from, from um, a, a pro-choice, uh, pro-abortion movement, right? Somebody would say, my body, my choice, right? It's my body, it's my choice as to what I do. But here's the truth. I think that many times, even though that is maybe the slogan, it is disingenuous about what is really going on. Because here's the truth. Oftentimes, the choice that is present, there is another choice behind that choice. Okay? Whatever choice that woman is making, there is often another person who is also making a choice. Oftentimes, maybe an ashamed father 
or an irresponsible boyfriend, maybe an inconvenienced employer, maybe even just an annoyed husband. And the truth is, is that even though that woman is saying, this is my choice and my body, what I'm doing with, the reality is, is that there is another voice in her life that is already lobbying for death, that has already made a decision and is pushing her to make a similar decision. Certainly that's not always true, right? I, every single situation is going to be unique, but many Many, many, many times a woman's independent choice is anything but independent. But notice Joseph. It's not his own self-interest, it's not his own interest that he is concerned with, but Mary's and Jesus. Joseph answers this sacrificial call to protect the life of of. Of Jesus. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Notice something. When the angels come to warn them to preserve the life of Jesus, who do they warn? They don't warn Mary. They warn Joseph. The angel doesn't come and say, Mary, your child, your decision. Joseph, you just sit back until, you know, you know these, understand these issues better. You don't have a uterus. You don't get an opinion on these subjects, right? Just be supportive of Mary. Let her make a decision, and then you back whatever decision that she makes. That's not what happens. God comes and says, Joseph, act. Joseph, protect. Joseph, do something. Again, there's this line in the abortion culture. Men, it isn't your issue, and you don't get an opinion on it. I would like to point out something about that, and it is this. It is always the pro-abortion advocates who say that. When you ask a woman who has been a leader in the pro-life movement a woman who has been leading the charge for 20, 30, 40 years, or even since the beginning with Roe v. Wade, you ask those women, and you know what they will say? They will say, where are all the men? How is it possible that men don't care about this issue? How can you sit back and not take some kind of responsibility for what amounts to the greatest holocaust in human history? and certainly the greatest moral catastrophe of our time. Like, how can you guys do nothing when this thing is going on all around you? I promise you, the women in the pro-life movement are not saying, guys, respectfully, this is a women's issue, right? So probably on this one, you should just kind of take a back seat and, and let women deal with this. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, you have to act. You have to step up. You have to have a voice in this thing. The pro-abortion movement starts by saying, men, you don't get an opinion because you're men. But guess what? That's because they're trying to eliminate half of their opposition. And incidentally, they turn around and then say to pro-life women, oh, by the way, you don't get an opinion either because you're not woman enough? I don't know what the answer is. We've seen it over and over again over the last few years with the Women's March, right? When pro-life 
women's groups apply to be a part of it, they're rejected. They're not allowed to be a part of it. Why? Because they're not pro-woman enough because they're pro-life. Okay? There is an effort to silence everybody who disagrees, certainly to silence men. But I'm going to tell you, we don't take our cues from the culture. Right? We take our cues from a God who has, who has entrusted us with something, right? who has said, you are called to be the protector of the innocent. You are called to be the protector of women in, in, in difficult situations and children whose lives are at risk. And so live up to that responsibility is what I'm saying. And so we do that at least in two ways. Number one, we do not use or disregard women and children for our own benefit. We don't act like Herod acted. And let me say, at the very least, what that means is we pursue sexual purity and sexual morality, right? We, we reject a culture of pornography. We reject a culture of promiscuity. We reject a culture that is anti-marriage. We don't put women in situations where they might have to make a decision about the life of their child because of our lust and our irresponsibility. We remember the nobility and the virtue that God has called us to, and we live it out. That's the first thing, right? But then also this, we accept the call to preserve and protect the lives of the innocent. It is a bizarre inconsistency to me. And, man, that's our cultural moment. We are full of bizarre inconsistencies in the way our world is playing out right now. But it is strange to me that we would have this Me Too movement that has come on that demands accountability and moral behavior by men. And I'm like, amen, right on. Like, the church has been saying that for 2,000 years, okay? But then... On the other side of it, there's another voice that says, oh, but by the way, on this issue, we don't want your opinion. We don't want you to have any role in it at all. You don't get a say in it. Don't take any responsibility, right? You should step completely back from this and just shut your mouth. That is a bizarre thing for the issue that is so at the center of, of, of the problems of the movement, right? And then to ignore the whole aspect of how they connect. But again, we don't take our cues from the culture. We don't hide from it. Um, we refuse to be called down by people when God has called us to step up and to protect. So men protect the innocent. Third thing, let me point out, third big point, not third point of, of that we just added on to. Let me point out one more thing. Not only do we protect, right, not only... Um, that, but we servant-heartedly provide for children and mothers. And here's the crazy thing. Sometimes we do that, oftentimes we do that, for children that don't even belong to us and mothers to whom we are not even married. So notice the language in this, in, in this whole passage, okay? And maybe, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it, right? But do you notice this, how when God gives the command, the call to Joseph, he says this. He says, it, it happens twice. He says, Take the child and his mother and go to Israel. Take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. He doesn't say, take your son. He doesn't say, take your wife. He doesn't say, take your betrothed and do these things. The emphasis seems to focus away from Joseph's relationship to Mary and Jesus. 
Because here's the crazy thing, and it's, and it's sort of a weird way to say it, I guess, but there's a sense in which Joseph is not Jesus' father, right? I mean, obviously we recognize that, right? We know who Jesus' father is. It's God. Joseph is not Jesus' dad. He's a stepfather, adopted father, something. Um, but there's a very real sense in which he is not his father. And in fact... Probably at this point, Joseph and 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 Mary ha- are are actually married now, um, right? But maybe not. We don't know the timeline exactly. They could still be in that betrothed state. We're not sure of that. So there's a possibility that functionally, Mary's not even his wife yet, and yet Joseph is being given responsibility for both of these people. He's given up, and probably under a year, he's given up two homes. Have you ever thought about that? He's abandoned his home in Nazareth, and now he's abandoned his home in Bethlehem. His livelihood, his community has been disrupted both times for these things. And I know it's not a one-to-one correlation, okay? But, but imagine this. What if I walked up to you tomorrow, and I handed you a baby, and I said, this baby will be killed tomorrow if you don't pick up and move to another country tonight? No time to sell your house, no time to figure out a job, no time to call family, no time to do anything. I need you to take this baby, and I need you to get on a plane, and I can't tell you when you're coming back. I don't know. What would you do, right? What decision would you make? I hope that we would all make the right decision, right? But recognize that uh, it's not insignificant what God is calling Joseph to do. That jo- Joseph is being picked up and up-planted, um, again, Functionally, for a child who doesn't belong to him, for not his child. What I'm saying is there's a picture here for us. Um, Men are going to be called to step up in ways and serve women and children that don't belong to them. And the reality is this, is that the more we encourage women to not have abortions, then that means there are going to be more children who need help. There are going to be more women who need help. Again, sometimes the charge is leveled against the church in this whole argument, right? Uh, you guys only care about the preborn. You care about life in the womb, but you don't care about life after um, birth, right? First off, baloney. That's nonsense. Christians are twice as likely as, as, the, as the general population to adopt. Catholics are three times as likely. Evangelicals are five times as likely to adopt than the general population. We have opened and run and give to support countless pregnancy resource centers and adoption agencies and ministries that meet every aspect of care and life, right? And that doesn't even mention the normal weekly function of every church in the United States as they serve mothers and children and youth ministries and all that stuff right there, right? The idea that we only care about preborn life is, is absurd and laughable. It's just plain false. But here's the reality, though. While that may not be true of Christianity as a whole, it may be very true about our lives in general, right, as individuals, That charge cannot be leveled against the church as a whole, but it certainly can be leveled against some of us in our own personal lives. And the reality is, again, if we care about women rightly with mercy and truth and gentleness, it will probably mean sacrificial care 
on our part in some way. And again, there's no cookie-cutter expectation here. Like, I can't tell you, like, here's what every single one of us has to do. I I don't know what that's going to look like in every single situation. But I can give you at least three overarching kind of ways that that these things apply. So here's, here's one. If women, if a woman is going to have that child, um, it means that there is going to be more need in the area of adoption care, right? It just is, right? There are going to be a number of those women who choose to uh, carry the child to term and then give it up for adoption, which means there is going to be greater need in the realm of adoption care, whatever that looks like. Maybe that means that you are, are called to be an adopter, somebody who adopts a child, foster homes, Respite care, acts of service, certainly prayer and encouragement in coming alongside people who have. You know, over the last year, we have talked a lot about those those three special focuses of, of ministry um, of sojourners, widows, and orphans, right? And so this last week, if you weren't all your, already aware, you probably saw it on Facebook and stuff, we started our ESL ministry. And so we had five people who showed up, um, um, Three, three people from Mexico, one from Honduras, and one from Vietnam, okay? And so we had a beginning to this thing that we've been talking about for, for over a year or around a year, okay? Um, and I'm super excited about that, right? It is a tangible expression of God's concern for those three, the special groups of people, right? Um, and I hope our church is concerned for that, and I hope it grows, man. I hope... Those five people go and invite their friends, and next week we've got 10, and the next week we've got 20, and, and I, hope it, I hope it continues to grow, and, and we need more help with it or whatever. Um, but I'm also interested in seeing how those other two uh, groups move forward in, in the coming year. Um, ministry to, to orphans and ministry to widows. The abortion issue is going to relate to the way we deal with orphans, right? Because there are going to be many children that come through a process who are functionally now orphans um, because their their mothers made a right decision to let them live but are not in a position to care for them rightly. And so adoption and adoption care has to be something that we consider um, as as a church um, and as individual households. Um, Two, you can serve, and it's another thing that we're going to be called to, you can serve that mom by recognizing that she is going to have very specific challenges and provide some extra consideration for that, right? So if you have a single mom who has chosen life and has chosen to keep her child and raise it, she's going to need some extra consideration, right? And so that means as employers, if you're an employer of, of one of those women, she's going to need some extra consideration. If you're a coworker, she's going to need some extra consideration. If you're a neighbor or a churchman, right, we're going to have to keep our eyes open for different ways that we can say, you know what, it's, a li- it's going to be a little bit harder for her, right, as a single mom to work and, and, and do all these things. She made a right choice that we encouraged her to make, and now we've got to come alongside her to help her um, live that choice out. And so, again, unique challenges, but there's going to be all kinds of special extra needs in that situation. And to ignore that, if we ignore that and to kind of say, well, that's not my problem, that's, that's you know, I can't be responsible for that, that's, that's her problem, um, undercuts the things that we say we believe in the power of our witness, okay? And so, so that's two. And then a third thing is, is this right here. 
you can serve those children by being a positive male influence in their lives. And again, I'm speaking directly to dads and, and men in the congregation, right? You can be a positive male influence in that child's life, right? You can't be their dad. You can't be. There's not any way that you can step in there and play the fullness of, a, of that role, right? Um, but you can be a friend. You can be a big brother in some ways. Um, you can be a role model in various ways, right? You can be a children's worker. You can be a youth leader. You can be a boys or girls club, you know, sponsor. You can be a scoutmaster. You can be a mentor. Because the reality is, is in all those places, you will meet kids who are here because their mother made a right decision and because the father is no longer involved in that kid's life. And so you have an opportunity to be a male role model to just be somebody who comes alongside um, and, and encourages and cares and loves and, and does whatever is necessary in those situations. There are going to be those opportunities. I can tell you from youth ministry, there's lots of them, right? There have been times in our youth group where most of the kids came from homes where the father was absent or at least where there was a, there was a split in the home or something like that, right? There's lots of opportunities for those things. We see all this in the character of Joseph, Right? We see Joseph live these things out. And I think that's one of the reasons why Matthew zooms in on Joseph a little bit. And that word, he says, Joseph was a just man, right? Joseph disappears from the canon of Scripture. By the time Jesus is old enough to um, start his ministry, we don't see Joseph anymore. We don't know what happened to him. We assume that he has died along the way. But Matthew seems to care about the fact, and he wants you to know, he says, man, Joseph was, was, a, was a good man, right? He was a man who God was working in and working through, and, and he was a just man. And he lived out his faith in, in um, a way that demonstrated that character. The reality is, though, is that Joseph is just living the life that Christ has lived, right? Um, that he is acting out the same kind of character and life that Jesus Christ has called us to. Um, that Jesus has been someone who comes to us with mercy, not condemnation, right? That Jesus has given sacrificially of himself to protect his people. In fact, to give his very life for those people. And that Jesus still ongoingly provides for the needs of his people, right? Continues to love and to serve and to care and to work in people. In fact, sometimes people who aren't even yet his, right? Sometimes people who either one day will be his, but oftentimes even people extending love, extending grace through the church and through other believers, working in people who do not know him and will never know him, and yet loving them despite that fact. That's the character that we see in Jesus Christ. Maybe another Sanctity of Life Sunday, maybe next year or something, um, we'll talk about the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And you see Jesus not acting in condemnation, right, but recognizing a woman who has sinned and yet saying, where are your condemners? Where are the people who are going to throw stones? And Jesus, the, the woman says, they're all gone, Lord. There's no one left. And then Jesus says, well, then neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Right? He takes seriously both sides of that thing, the truth of the sin that is there, and yet responds to it in grace and mercy and service to that woman who's in danger. 
that's the attitude that I think we're supposed to have. Um, it's a hard thing because it's a very personal thing. Again, all of these issues are difficult to deal with um, and, and speak into. Um, again, in a culture that says men shut up, you have no place in this conversation, sometimes even our um, uh, trying to help may be seen as an act of interference. All right, But again, we do our best. Um, we act in love and grace to people and, and extend that to the best in the best way that we know how. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now and just pray about these issues. Um, it, it's, it's, I don't know how much you guys um, listen to or, or think about or read about um, the pro-life movement in the United States um, and, and how things are going. If you just watch you know, cable news, you would be very pessimistic, I think, about a lot of these issues. But the people on the ground, uh, the people who are working in the pro-life movement, we have seen drastic drops in the number of abortions over the last, say, 30 years. Um, it continues to decline. Um, efforts to make people aware of what's really going on in the life of the child and everything from, from 3D sonograms and all those things and all the science that we have about prenatal science and stuff, man, it is turning the tide. And there are lots of people in the pro-life movement who say, not just optimistically, but, but, but hopefully, something, something more than that, they say legal abortion in the United States will end within our lifetime, right? We will have shifted the culture on these issues in, a li in our lifetime. Uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, is that, it's not Pryor Swallow, Swallow Pryor, she has an article on, on Vox, which is a web uh, thing. Anyway, don't worry about it. Uh, but anyway, she has this article, and, and, she's, and it, it, was, it was a series that's called, What Will Be the Things in 50 Years That We Will Look Back On and Go, I Can't Believe People Used to Do That. And, and her answer was, in 50 years, people will look back and say, I can't believe that abortion was legal in this, in this country um, because of the way the tide is shifting on many of these issues. Are we there yet? No, we're not. Um, but yet there are huge strides being made as people recognize that the life inside a mother is, is sacred and real and something that God cares about and is not to be treated lightly. Okay, So let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask God to continue to move our hearts on these things. Um, ask God what this will mean for you as an individual. right? In, in the coming years, in, in your family, in your household, um, how can you serve and sacrifice and give in your own life um, to meet the needs of, of the things that we have talked about? And that we would pray in general that this um, Holocaust would end and that we would be a church that would be welcoming and, and graciously and helpfully and sacrificially receive um, not only those who have chosen life but those who have chosen abortion and that we would be able to, to minister to them and to, to care for them um, as, as they deal with those things. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you call us into a, a heavy, weighty, serious calling. 
God, since the very earliest years of the Christian church, God, we have been known and recognized for the way we treated children who were unwanted. That in the very earliest years of the church, that when, when Roman and Greek culture took unwanted children and left them out on the side of mountains to die of exposure, God, it was Christians who came behind those parents and picked those children up and brought them into their own homes and raised them as their own children. God, we, it is part of our culture and DNA to be people of life. God, that we would support the life and fight for the life that is in the womb, God, and that we would fight for the life of those who are already born. God, help us to do that. Help us to have a right mindset to um, recognize the urgency of, of the call around us, God, to, um, it is so easy for us to get caught up in all of the normal things of what we might call the American dream, um, and that, um, God, we can miss so many opportunities that you have for us because of those things, um, that we can get so tied up in, in keeping up with what we think life should look like that we don't notice those who are dying next to us. God, help us, help give our eyes, help us see rightly. God, open our eyes to these things and open our hearts. We thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ.